if you spend a great deal of time trying to argue people over to your particular view of Lord's Day observances, or if you get into arguments online over theological minutiae, and yet you neglect the weightier matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness, then you are a Pharisee. You are a blind guide. You are straining out gnats and swallowing camels and doing great harm, however inadvertently, to the cause of Jesus Christ. Stop. Love mercy. Love justice. Love faithfulness. Those are the weightier matters. Be about those things. Be about Jesus. Spend most of your time trying to commend his loving authority. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Evangelicalism has always been attractive to people who are passionate and to people who are precise. But sometimes, when we get our priorities wrong, that can lead to the Pharisaic habit of straining out a gnat while swallowing a camel. Obviously, we don't want to do that. Obviously, we want to major in the weightier matters, things like mercy, justice, and faithfulness. But as anyone can tell you, that's easier said than done. Here to explore that further with us is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 23. I've mentioned a few times that this whole section running from 19.3 through to 26.5 is sometimes given the title Opposition and Eschatology. In the next chapter, we get into the heart of the eschatological section. Up until now, the dominant theme has been opposition. Much of that opposition has been coming from the scribes and Pharisees toward the teaching and claims of Christ. But we need to be honest and admit that some of that opposition has been coming from Christ himself. Jesus is not merely being opposed. In this chapter, we see more clearly than ever before Jesus is also vehemently opposing. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen this, not by a long shot. Way back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus set up a clear contrast between his way, the way of the kingdom, and the false way, the rejected way of the scribes and the Pharisees. Think of how many times he said things like, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, Jesus is clearly criticizing the scribes and Pharisees in those passages. They were the ones who were saying, and Jesus is saying, do not listen to them. He went on to criticize how they pray and how they give and how they fast. So he didn't like what they taught and he didn't like how they practiced. And he said so publicly and he made it clear that the way he was teaching his disciples was superior to the false and rejected way of the scribes and Pharisees. He said in Matthew 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then in Matthew 16, verse 6, he told his disciples, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, Matthew 16, 6. So don't listen to them. Don't don't be influenced by them. They are a corrupting influence within Judaism. So let's be clear. This whole opposition theme is a two-way street. There is a clear conflict happening between 
two potential interpretations of the Old Testament and between two distinct visions for how people should relate to God. And here in Matthew 23, we see that conflict coming to a boil. The scribes and Pharisees have rejected Jesus. We saw that back in Matthew 12, verse 24. And now here we see Jesus rejecting them, rejecting their way. Many Pharisees, of course, will become Christians later on. We think of the Apostle Paul first and foremost. But their way, their version of righteousness, their understanding of the kingdom, their whole way of life, religiously speaking, is here being rejected. They are blind guides for the blind, Jesus is saying. And whoever follows them will fall into the pit. That's what Jesus has been saying. That's what he continues to say in this chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one Father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So here we see Jesus' further rejection of the Pharisaic form of righteousness. All preaching and no practice. All externalism and no heart. All pride and no pity. Do not be like them. Nevertheless, and quite surprisingly, Jesus says that because they sit in Moses' seat, they must be obeyed in at least a limited sense. We remember here the Apostle Paul saying in his own trial, it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Acts 23 verse 5. Followers of Christ must outdo one another in showing honor wherever possible, but we must not take these sorts of leaders as our example. We must be characterized by humility, service, and sacrifice. In verses 8 to 10, Jesus says some things that are hard to understand. What does he mean when he says that we should not call people rabbi or teacher? And we shouldn't refer to anyone as father. How exactly does he intend for us to take that? Leon Morris is very helpful here and is worth quoting at length. He says, Jesus' followers did not have teachers that ranked with the Jewish rabbis. And they must not act as though there were outstanding people among them to whom they all must give heed. One is your teacher, Jesus says, and that has its implications for all his followers. It does not mean, of course, that none of them can ever learn from any of the others. The very fact that the books of the New Testament were ever written is testimony to the fact that some Christians were able to teach others. And of course, in every age, there have been some Christians who have been able to give instruction to others. It must always be the case that some will know more than others and that they will have the duty of passing their knowledge on to others. Jesus is saying that among his followers, there is to be no such system as that among the Jews, 
with the great ones expounding the law authoritatively and the rank and file permanently occupying an inferior place. Christians have but one teacher, and they must not expect that in due course others will emerge who will eclipse him and establish their own ways of understanding what God wills for his people. There is and can be only one Jesus, closed quote. I think that's a very helpful summary. Remember, the issue is that currently the scribes and Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses. That is to say, they are the ones who deliver the authoritative doctrine and application in first century Judaism. In the synagogues, there was actually a seat of Moses from which the doctrine was delivered. Much like today, we would talk about the chair of the history department at the university or the chair of the medical school. The chair is the person who's in charge of what is taught. Well, in first century Judaism, that was the role given to the scribes and Pharisees. But Jesus is saying that they don't deserve that chair. They don't really understand the law. And so Jesus says that his disciples are not to bow and scrape before these self-appointed authorities. They are to accept Jesus as their sole authority. Jesus is the sole authoritative interpreter of the law. He is the word of God in the flesh. That's John's phraseology, but that's Matthew's theology, as we can see clearly in this text. Jesus is God. He is the one, therefore, who properly understands and explains the word of God. So, he is the teacher. He is the master. He is the one who makes authoritative pronouncements in the church. Now, as Morris says, that doesn't mean that there aren't people who study and who accumulate knowledge and who pass that on to other people, but that isn't what was happening in Judaism. These scribes and Pharisees were making authoritative pronouncements. They were making doctrine. They were developing a layer of tradition that, according to Jesus, had become more authoritative than the scripture itself. That's the problem that Jesus is addressing here. So, in the church, among Christ's followers, his word reigns supreme. He is our hermeneutical principle. Pastors and elders are in charge of making sure that their people are well taught, and they're in charge of making sure that the Christian message is passed on faithfully from generation to generation, but they are not makers of doctrine, and they should not expect to be treated with special dignity. They should be treated with respect, as per Hebrews 13, 17, but without any of the fawning and the silliness that can so often creep into religious culture. I will say here that this is one of the reasons that I am a Protestant. No pastor should expect any other human being to kiss his ring or to accept his pronouncements as having divine authority. When I step into the pulpit, I expect my people to be following along in their open Bibles. And if I say something that doesn't square with what's on the page, I expect them to correct me kindly and lovingly from the text. Because we are brothers and sisters, and we have only one Father, only one Master, and that is the Lord. He is the authoritative voice in the church. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can. You said in the program audio that this issue is one of the reasons that you're a Protestant as opposed to a Roman Catholic, and I get that. I, I think I could say the same thing, but we Protestants can get caught up in a version of this sin as well. 
I'm thinking of how social media, for example, can build up famous preachers to the point where they're almost functioning like some kind of pope. They're making authoritative pronouncements on issues that are either outside the Bible or that are at least debated by good Christian people. And they've got like huge masses of people who seem to go along with just everything they say. We're not exactly immune from this danger, are we? No, you're absolutely right. As Protestants, we tend not to institutionalize our magisterial authorities, but they certainly still exist. Uh, they're on the internet, like you said, or they're in the megachurches, and the extension of their authority does, in fact, create challenges for local churches. So uh, how, how should this work? I mean, as you say in the program audio, Jesus isn't saying here that we shouldn't have teachers, but he does seem to be saying that he alone should be treated as the ultimate interpreter of Holy Scripture and that he alone should be recognized as our teacher and leader. So how does this understanding that and acknowledging that work out in the real world, in actual local churches? Because they have teachers and they have leaders, and the New Testament seems to indicate that they should have those people in place, and we should be following them or submitting to them in some sense. So can you unpack that a little further for us? Yeah, sure. It's an important question, and I think the real issue here is authority. Jesus is the head of the church. So all authority ultimately derives from him. He is the standard. He is the interpreter. He is the example. He is the leader. So practically speaking, no one can put forward an interpretation that departs from or contradicts an interpretation that he has provided, either directly or through his authorized apostles. Yeah, because that's a bit complicated as well. Jesus in John 16 says that he's going to say more things through the apostles by the Spirit after he's ascended into heaven, right? Yes, and so that's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the center, the base, and the pattern but he authorizes the apostles to flesh that pattern out. But then the rest of us build up from there. All right, so no innovation after the ground level. No theological innovation, ah. no. We are striving for greater clarity, of course, but we are not making authoritative pronouncements after the ground level. We are not authoritative teachers in that sense. We are hopefully faithful stewards. Okay, that makes sense. But what about all the pomp and circumstance then that we see in some Christian traditions? Uh, why are we kissing the ring and wearing purple robes and dressing our pastors up as if they were medieval princes? Right. Well, as I said, that's one of the main reasons I'm a Protestant and a Baptist at that, as opposed to a Roman Catholic. I don't think our pastors should look like medieval European princes. I think they should look like humble shepherds. Mm. And so that gets into another piece of this then. Jesus seems to be saying that we should avoid exalted titles, but even in Protestantism, we seem to struggle with this. Every pastor and their brother nowadays seems to have a PhD or a D-man and wants to be called Dr. This or Professor That. Isn't that running contrary to this passage? That's definitely something we need to think through carefully. Listen, there's certainly nothing wrong with education. The Bible says that we're to study to show ourselves approved. And if you study long enough, you're going to accumulate a variety of degrees and titles. I don't think that's the issue. I think, I think the problem is when you begin to need people to address you according to those titles. In the church, I think it should be brother and sister, pastor and people. The word pastor is a good New Testament word. It just means shepherd. 
That's what Jesus told Peter to do after the resurrection. It's a humble word. It's a blue-collar word. And I think Jesus is steering us away from craving or displaying honorific titles. We should avoid anything that seeks to push us up over other people. Rather, as much as possible, we need to stoop down to serve other people. Mm, All right, that's good counsel. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 13. Jesus is not yet done in his denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and Mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Here again, we are reminded that Pharisaic righteousness was all about precise, burdensome observation of formal laws and prescriptions. They were obsessed with religious minutiae and had missed entirely the heart and essence of the matter. Now, Jesus isn't saying that precision is bad. He is saying that heart matters more. Heart has to come first. If you're precise in the wrong spirit or if you're precise in the wrong direction, you've accomplished nothing of value. And if you are precise about the wrong things, then you're just wasting your life. Now, let's just pause here and acknowledge that the Pharisaic spirit has too often been permitted and nurtured even within certain circles in evangelicalism. Evangelicalism tends to attract people who like to be precise in their religious observances. Evangelicals are like the Navy SEALs of Protestantism. We read the Bible more. We share our faith more. We take everything more seriously, and that's good. But as a result, we tend to attract personalities obsessed with detail and minutia. We attract theological cage fighters who want to split the church and excommunicate people over words they don't even fully understand. And we attract devotional guard dogs who want to know how many days a year we're fasting and, and how much exactly we're tithing and whether or not we cut our grass on the Lord's day. Okay, That is modern day Pharisaism and it needs to be lovingly but firmly put down. It needs to be corrected. That is not the Jesus way. 
if you spend a great deal of time trying to argue people over to your particular view of Lord's Day observances, or if you get into arguments online over theological minutiae, and yet you neglect the weightier matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness, then you are a Pharisee. You are a blind guide. You are straining out gnats and swallowing camels and doing great harm, however inadvertently, to the cause of Jesus Christ. Stop. Love mercy. Love justice. Love faithfulness. Those are the weightier matters. Be about those things. Be about Jesus. Spend most of your time trying to commend his loving authority. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. According to Jesus, righteousness is first and foremost a matter of the heart. It starts on the inside and seeps out. The Pharisees, however, only care about the outside. They whitewash themselves. They whitewash everything. They, they just want to look good, but... Jesus' people want to actually be good. They want to be changed from the inside out into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Here, Jesus says that the scribes and Pharisees of his day are of a peace with those who persecuted the prophets of God in former generations. They claim to honor the prophets, but in truth, if they were to appear again today, they would kill them just as surely as their ancestors killed those who came before. The reference to this generation at the end of verse 36 is sobering. It is not only the leaders who are condemned, but all those who fail to reject them and to embrace Jesus as their rightful Lord and Savior. That leads to the lament that concludes the chapter beginning in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes 
in the name of the Lord. This is no mere theological squabble, friends. This isn't a turf war in first century Judaism. This is a life or death struggle for the true vision, for the soul of the kingdom of God. The way of the Pharisees is being rejected. All those who remain under their yoke will share in their impending doom. So come out from them, Jesus says. Come to me, how I would gather you as a hand gathers her brood under her wing. Judgment is coming, Jerusalem. And the window for salvation is rapidly closing. This is the hinge that moves us from opposition to eschatology We'll pick up that side of the story in chapter 24. Thanks be to God. Amen. Pastor Paul, before we wrap things up, I want to go back to something you said near the end of the program audio there. You said, quote, according to Jesus, righteousness is first and foremost a matter of the heart. It starts on the inside and seeps out, close quote. I think that's really important. And I know from experience how hard it is to keep that direction and flow in place. I often find myself thinking more about how people see me and how I look than about how I really am. Yeah, I think we all wrestle with that, particularly as parents. We often find ourselves accidentally functioning as pharisaical parents. We major on behavior management instead of on heart change. But the gospel fundamentally targets the inner person. But that's not to say that behavior doesn't matter. No, absolutely. It does matter. But the order matters. Mm. What the gospel wants is the obedience of faith. It wants a changed heart that desires to pursue the things of God. And that's what the Pharisees didn't get. And that is what it is so easy for us to lose in our zeal and in our passion still today. So thanks be to God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God for the miracle of regeneration and for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because that's where the battle is won or lost. And that's the essential direction and flow of all right religion. It begins in the heart. And it flows out from there as love toward God and service and mercy toward our fellow man. All right. Amen to that. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.